Hi, everyone, and welcome to the August 18th, 2023 episode of the Automotive News Canada podcast. I'm your host, Greg Layson, the digital and mobile editor at Automotive News Canada. Ontario dealers face what's being described as a crisis, a shortage of service technicians being called worse than expected after a new report shed light on the subject. My guest today will talk about the problem, what it means for dealers, how it's being addressed, and what else needs to be done to solve the problem. All that and more when I speak with Motor Vehicle Retailers of Ontario Executive Director Todd Borgen on this episode of the Automotive News Canada podcast. Todd, thanks for joining me on the podcast this week. You're welcome, and Greg, thanks for having me this morning. Yeah, it's great to have you back. Let's start here. Start by telling me about the problem dealers in Ontario are facing right now. What is it, and how bad is it? Simply put, a technician labor crisis, and it's bad. And the numbers that uh, we published out yesterday from the market study that we did with MNP uh, and with the conjunction with the CADA uh, demonstrate that we've got this problem for some time. It's not short-lived, and uh, we need to look at ways that we can help dealers uh, get through this. How many are you short? How long will the shortage last? The total shortage in the industry is 3,000 currently, and they're showing that the shortage will not balance itself out in terms of qualified people and demand for qualified people until between 2030 and 2031. And what sort of jobs are we talking about here? I know we broadly speak about service technicians, but there's a few different jobs within that broad term, is there not? So what are we missing? There is. So I think the the crux of the report breaks it down into some very finite detail. But if you just kind of look at it holistically, you've got about 80 percent are automotive service technicians and um, 20 percent are body shop technicians. Um, Those are the two major ones. So those service technicians that they're working on my brakes or or doing tire changes, muffler, what are they working on? Is that generally what it is? All the all the above. Anything from, you know, brakes to changing oil to uh, in today's world, they don't usually fix transmissions. As an example, they replace them. So um, varying levels of degrees, depending on varying levels of experience. Okay. so how did we get where we are today? How did we get to the point where (laughs) we are three thousand people short for a field? Well, that's a little bit of the perfect storm, right? Where we've always, and rightly so, have relied upon uh, people entering trades uh, through the school system and then entering into our ecosystem um, and them balancing each other out. Um, but for the last number of years, we've been hearing from our dealers that there's just not enough or, you know, there's people that are coming into the, say, the apprenticeship system and some stay and some don't stay. And... We thought when the pandemic hit that actually, well, we might see a bit of a reversal where there's, you know, a, a job, sh- not a job uh, shortage any longer, but quite frankly, where we might have seen the economy suffer and that we had more people to work than we did jobs available. But as you and I both know, the opposite occurred. What also occurred during that time was that trade schools, like you can't teach trade schools from a, 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 an office at your house or at your kitchen table as a student's. It's a hands-on learning when you're when you're in the apprentice programs. So during COVID, these schools were unable to obviously teach their trades. And so, you know, kids are behind in some cases that are in these programs anywhere from one to two years. So it just made the whole issue bigger than what it even started out as. But during COVID, people also made conscious decisions to look at their lifestyles. And so some people left our industry and went to other industries or some people just plainly retired. So now we've got an aging demographic within our trades 
um, and we've got a greater number of people retiring in the coming years than we have coming into the system. So it's really just simple math. The school system plays a role, super major role, and this data will help us encourage kids to get into the school system and stay in the school system with great paying jobs. But we have a window over the next anywhere from one to six years, starting as one year today, where quite frankly, they won't be able to fill those needs. So what we've been having to do and what we started to do about a year and a half ago is we've been having to look overseas for skilled technicians that can come in and fill these immediate roles right now because the roles that are empty are expensive roles to remain empty. Uh, I want to just double back on something you mentioned. People during the pandemic left the industry or couldn't be taught in the industry, but we're doing other jobs and some of them from home. Because of the technological advances of the automobile, do certain skills that the technicians need, do they translate to other jobs that can be done from a desk or at home or in another area? Because, you know, we've heard it before, cars are quote unquote rolling computers. So does that hurt the industry that the people have the skills to do both? They could maybe work in an office rather than in a shop. So I don't have the, st the statistical data to say to you, this is the exact number and right. how that affects, but I'll give you a couple of examples. Sure. There are some companies, for example, that let's say a, a third party a warranty company um, where the people that are overseeing those warranties and proving those warranties are, are not physically in a store. They're sitting in a central location. And a lot of those people can work from home. So there's an example. And the person that's looking at those warranties is typically someone that has either a certification um, as an automotive service technician or, or background in something like that or background in, for example, as a service advisor. Okay. However, that's a very small percentage. What we saw and what the report states is that you saw some people look at other industries like transit, um, like Metrolinks, depending on the areas that they live, um, where, as you know, some of those jobs offer uh, different benefits than they may have in the environment that they have. And that those jobs, for example, may give them a different level of security, depending on the employer that they have. So that's not all cases, but that's just an example of two situations on where these individuals can go. The report also states that some people just retire. They were at a stage in their life where they were able to retire. As we know, during the pandemic, real estate went insane. <laughs> and so people that bought their houses maybe 20 years ago had a huge nest egg of money sitting there sold and decided to do something different. So the report talks about all those different factors, and they all just compound into a bigger number. How does, speaking of numbers, how does this affect a dealer's bottom line, this shortage? So we looked at two areas that, and there's, there's a number of them, but the two areas the report focuses on is um, labor rate and parts. And so there's a national parts number that can be used as a factor towards X amount of um, labor hours. And right now that number is just, you saw it, it's ugly. Over the course of a year, if you average the high to the low, it's $500,000 per vacancy that that revenue is not entering into the dealership because they're not, they're not generating those ROs that are generating labor hours and also generating parts revenue. So if you took 3000 job vacancies and multiplied it by half a million dollars, I think that my calculator doesn't go that far, but I think we're looking at $1.5 billion. So that $1.5 billion is a lot of tax revenue at different levels of the government. Um, and quite frankly, it's good for our economy because those, those numbers are going back into our economy through multiple different sources. Um, once these people are working and once these dealerships have that revenue, right? 
I know you touched on the temporary foreign workers program, and we're going to get to that. But before we get to that level, I'm wondering at the ground level, at the local level, without any provincial or federal programs to assist, what can and what are dealers doing to attract new talent? Well, they're doing it now, and and they've been doing it for a long time. Quite frankly, it's just the it's the it's the numbers that are available to them. So a lot of them are working with local high schools to get them excited about our industry, to go into our industry. Uh, a lot of them work with their local colleges to do the exact same thing. I know dealerships that offer scholarships to people um, to help them through, um, say, co- certain college programs, and then in turn they come and work for their dealership when they do their co-ops or their apprentices. There's lots of different ways that they're being um, currently supported. The truth is the numbers just aren't there. And so what ends up happening when the numbers aren't there and they have a need, it's like any other industry. We're, we're not immune to this, is that they'll go out and they'll offer jobs to people that are qualified that are working for, say, a competitor or another like industry that have that certification. And usually the way you attract that person is either through more money or through greater benefits or through greater job security. All that adds into the cost because it's the same way in grocery. We all know that when gas went up, cost of groceries went up, everything gets passed along. And our industry is certainly no different. If the cost of having that labor is going to go up, then certainly the cost of your repair is going to go up as well. And so that's that's what's happening. I've heard some crazy stories, as probably you have, on um, how some you know people are being recruited right now. And it's just not sustainable. We just can't keep going back to other organizations to quote unquote, take their people and pay them more because eventually that person's gonna leave for more money to go somewhere else if that's what they're driven by. That's not sustainable and that's not how our industry is gonna survive long-term. So let's zoom out. I know dealers have turned to the temporary foreign workers program. It was in the report, you mentioned it. Um, This is to help fill those vacancies, but you and the report all say it's not the best or most efficient solution either. Why is that? Well, honestly, I can speak firsthand to it because I've been involved with the Temporary Foreign Workers Program for quite some time, like the last few years. And I've been actually traveling to the Philippines on our program uh, to help vet the candidates along with our technicians that come. So the reason why we say it's not the best is because, quite frankly, it's just it's slow. It's a great solution. Don't get me wrong. I think some of the wording in in the report um, could have been a little bit uh, different in some respects, but it's a fantastic program in the fact that you get qualified, skilled technicians that can come into your workplace that are willing to work. It also keeps them in your workplace for anywhere from two to three years. They cannot go and work for somewhere else because they're tied to your place of business. So I would tell you, I think the program is fantastic in many ways. Where I think the program falls down, and it's not the program's fault, it's the fences that have been put around it by the federal government that you have to prove to the federal government that there isn't a qualified Canadian to take that job. As a Canadian, I totally understand and subside to that. However, we've been showing for the last number of years that we have a major shortage in our industry and that a process of demonstrating to the government that takes months and costs money that there isn't somebody qualified for that job in the world that we live in, I think is futile. So it costs two to three months out of the process and it costs money to do that. And for every single headcount that that, indiv- that group brings in, they have, to, they have to provide that LMIA. So I have dealers right now that are recruiting 20 and in some cases 50 technicians overseas for their group, and they have to do that LMIA for every person. It's absolutely a waste of time, money, energy. And the, our, the idea of this report was to demonstrate to the government 
that it's time for them to take that requirement away and help simplify the process because I'm all about helping bring a solution to a problem. I don't look at government to fix our problems. I, I believe we have to participate in that. So we've done that by bringing that foreign workers program to the members as a way to help solve this in the short term. But they need to do their part now to make this easier so that we as Canadians can compete globally. Because as you saw in the report, there's other countries that can make this process much faster. So let me ask you this then. What do you and the motor vehicle retailers of Ontario and the dealers do now that you're armed with all this data and you have this report? What is the next step? Where do you turn to find help and a solution? Well, the good news is, is that the CADA, which is the national group, helps helped us in participating in this report. And they've been a partner in this. And they are going to work with us to take this to the federal government to provide a case that says, the LMIA process is one of the elements that slows us down significantly, and it's costly. We already have a major problem in our industry. Here's the number, the dollars. Here's the revenue we're losing. Here's the projections on headcount and how long our issue is going to last for. We need a temporary exemption, or we need an exemption for our industry that says an LMIA is not required. So that's simply the next step. You go to that ministry with that argument. Um, they did publish something last week that they were going to that ministry is going to look at um, giving some relief to the LMIA program. However, they're focusing on agriculture and it doesn't go far enough. They talk about how you have to have three LMIAs within five years per location um, to prove that, that that exemption is warranted. And quite honestly, if I have a dealership that only needs three headcount, then they're no further ahead. They're in the exact same process we're in today. And we have a ton of data that says we have a massive problem. I am curious about this. How does the MVRO expect electric vehicles to affect this problem? Does it change anything? Does it make it better, worse? I just wonder what EVs do moving forward. Well, I think, honestly, it makes it more challenging. Um, and it makes it more challenging because one of the elements that are spoken about in this report is that on the education side, um, the education side hasn't caught up to teaching electrification yet. There's only a few different uh, colleges um, across Canada that have specific courses to this. The good news is, is that we're seeing investments right now in Ontario uh, from the province in EV training centers, like a Canador College is an example. I know Durham College has one. Um, so it's it's starting, um, but it's it's not there yet. And it's no different, as you and I both know, that part of the problems right now with EVs is infrastructure. There is no lack of infrastructure to charge them. And still right now, there's a lack of infrastructure on teaching. And in our world, you need four, it's a four-year program, um, and you need so many hours, as you as you know, to become a licensed technician. So this fix doesn't happen in, in a year. This fix doesn't happen as quick as we want it to. And that's why some people have said to me, well, why are you guys still going overseas? Why aren't you pushing this? So we're going to push education for sure. And that's what we've always done. In fact, our association provided hundreds of thousands of dollars over the year in, in financial support for um, students and also in also uh, supporting different colleges and the programs that, that they would have for our industry. However, if you look at how long it takes to get those people into the job mix and now also to retrain a bunch of them on EV, as an example, that's why the foreign workers program has to work in sync at the same time for a number of years until they catch up to each other. I want to end here. I want to read a part of an email we received from someone who read our initial online story and we'll have more in print in mid-August. But I want you to listen to this and then respond. And the email reads, in part, 
and I'm quoting now, I think some of the reasons the network can't attract talent is because most dealer service work environments are toxic in terms of favoritism. The shop foreman will keep the lucrative jobs like breaks for themselves or their experienced guys. There are poor leaders, low pay, and a lot of OEMs are also to blame for shortchanging technicians on warranty or recall repair labor time. What do you say to that email? Well, I'd say that that person has obviously had an experience that was uh, not great, but that certainly doesn't represent our industry. If it represented the industry, we would have nobody working here. Um, you know, in Ontario, we've got over 83,000 people working in our industry. So um, I can't comment to that individual's situation or that, that, uh, that particular organization that they work with. Um, so the truth is, is that I think that if that was the norm, then we'd have a much bigger problem on our hands and we'd be getting more and more of those emails. But I haven't seen an email like that in the 15 years that I've been working here. So let me follow up with this. I did talk to a dealer yesterday who said, yeah, we, we share some of the blame in that we don't promote the jobs as well as we should and, and promote them as important. And they are, because if you remember, and this was the dealer's, uh, comment was that during COVID, repair shops were deemed essential so we could fix the vehicles of the first responders. Um, they aren't maybe glamorous, but they're important. Has Have dealerships sort of fallen down in promoting the jobs and their value and their worth then? And do dealers share a little bit of responsibility in the shortage in that sense? I wouldn't say that they share responsibility in the shortage. I say that there's an opportunity in some cases because quite frankly, there's a number of dealers that I talk to that do an incredible job of, of onboarding. They're very aggressive in their onboarding. They're at every single event that, that would be put on as far as the ability to do job fairs and things like that. And they have you know programs and flex hours and everything in place that people of today's generation would look for. Um, but the truth is, is that you can always do more. And the truth is, is that there's some that do things differently than others because they have different resources available to them, right? Um, so, you know, as an industry, I would tell you that 15 years ago, when I walked in the doors to this, this organization, we never talked to people about how much money people can make in the industry. It was like, it, it was like, if you don't open Pandora's box, but it, it, it turned out that that is something that is important. And obviously I'm a parent and what I want to talk to my kids about at the kitchen table on a Sunday night, when they're talking about careers is how they're going to support themselves as they get older and you know what type of careers are going to give them that opportunity. I need to know that I can make as a technician or if I can, you know, as a controller or as a GM, that these are the types of incomes that I can make. And that's why over the last number of years, we've started to conduct these surveys that allow us to be able to demonstrate that these are averages in certain areas of the province as far as other rule or, um, if, or factors into um, that the, the brand is an example, but we, we have done a much, much better job, I think, as an industry talking about that these are fantastic um, opportunities, they're good paying jobs, they offer good careers, and I would tell you that I think that the dealers do a much, much better job of this today than they, than they have you know, a number of years ago. Um, and I also think that our efforts from a lobbying perspective, if I can just you know, toot our own horn a little bit, um, I've got one of the best lobbyists, as you know, uh, working for us in the province, uh, period. Um, keeping dealerships open during uh, a pandemic as an essential service is not an easy task. And that is something that we were obviously able to accomplish, but the provincial government's been listening to our needs and changing some of the structure from a trades perspective by having 
grade 11 kids now transition into full-time skilled trades apprenticeship programs. That's all new. That's something that we need now to keep doing what we want to do. And that is to, you know, generate homegrown talent. Um, implementing that starting in 2024 in grade nine, they have to earn a credit in grade nine or 10 on the technology side. That's something that's going to help trade. So yes, incrementalism is starting to take place. I think the industry is starting to um, do a, a, a fantastic job at bringing this to light. The challenge that we have when you see a report like this, Greg, is that the time that it takes to ramp up, to level yourself out on supply and demand, that's the, that's the Achilles heel that we have. Todd, always great to talk to you. I appreciate it. You're welcome. And it's great to talk to you as well. Thanks for having me on. Anytime. I'd like to thank Todd for being my guest. If you'd like to be a guest on the show, have a suggestion or simply want to comment, email me at glayson at autonews.com. And remember, you can listen to all our previous podcasts on Spotify, iTunes, and Google Play, or on our website, automotivenews.ca. Just click the podcast tab at the top of the homepage. That does it for this episode of the Automotive News Canada podcast. We hope you'll join us next time. So long, everybody.